0: Welcome. This is Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. And with risk being a major topic right now, our guest today is Kyle Downey, the CEO and co-founder of Cloudwall, a recently launched fintech, which is building digital asset risk management solutions for institutional investors. Welcome, Kyle. Thank you, Tyler. So I think this is really like perfect timing given everything that's happened recently in the industry and to have an expert such as yourself involved. But before we get into, you know, the topical stuff, how did you how, how did your career evolve from what were you doing in tra- traditional financial services into digital assets?
1: So in 2013, I was working overseas. So I spent 7 years in Shanghai and Hong Kong and near the end of that, um, I remember coming across a news article. It was talking about a a Bitcoin mine starting up in Kowloon, which is where our apartment was. So naturally, the first question is, what the hell is Bitcoin? And the second one is, why are they mining it? So I started reading about it. Like many people in the field, the kind of next step was I came across the white paper and I read it. And I was fascinated by it. I started researching trading for years. Um, And, you know, this was something I'd always done kind of nights and weekends off to the side. Um, but I kind of held it in the back of my mind because winding back more than 20 years ago, I tried to start a company that I wanted to eventually leave Morgan Stanley and do that again. Uh, and so it was pretty natural that whatever I was going to do would be something crypto-related.
0: And what were you doing in, at the bank, because I know Morgan Stanley had a, a research department that was looking at the you know, digital asset space for like a really long time, even if maybe outwardly they weren't as optimistic or, you know, involved in the space. So I mean. As part of your day job, were you at all um, interacting with the digital asset space or evaluating it for you know the bank's purposes? Or totally Not separate.
1: Totally separate. Uh, there was one project that we did that had a very very uh, loose coupling to it, but my focus in the later years at Morgan Stanley uh, was the equities and particularly the equity derivatives business, uh, and uh, and nothing digital assets related.
0: So did it come as, as quite a shock to your colleagues then when, when you handed in your notice and said, and guess what, guys, I'm a Bitcoiner, I'm out of here.
1: So people were generally aware uh, from you know posts that I'd done in LinkedIn, things that I talked about that I had a passion for the topic. I did have one very senior managing director look at me as I was almost on my way out and say, you know, if I had to guess one person who would do this, it would not have been you. <laughs> so I wasn't sure how I felt about that.
0: Well, it's a chance to prove them all wrong, I guess. That's right. Um, so then what led to, like, how did you found Cloudwall? And is Cloudwall the first thing you've done since leaving the bank? Is that what you That's left correct. for? That's yeah.
1: correct. So at the tail end of the pandemic, my family spent the summer in New Hampshire, which is where I grew up. Uh, so we were, we were by the sea for a month. Um, For the previous year due to the pandemic, I had almost checked out of dealing with digital assets in crypto. And during that month, I started looking into it again. Interestingly, I had a sales call with Copper at the time. It's one of the first business-related calls that I did that summer um, uh, to learn a little bit about what you guys do. Um, and in the course of it, my wife and I had a number of conversations about well, we do this kind of crazy, risky thing of, uh, of leaving and starting a company. Can we do it now? And We kind of talked through how it might work. Um, and it's one of those things like once a, a seed of an idea is in your mind, it just grows and grows and grows. And this particular seed grew for about six weeks and ended in a resignation. <laughs> um, uh, because at that point, I was like, I, I have to figure out a way to make this work. Um, so, I had three months notice. So, I did not actually start with Cloudwall until November 1st, so fall of last year. Um, during that time, I approached my two co-founders, Ilya Kulyatin, who's an experienced uh, hedge fund quant, uh, and an old friend from Shanghai uh, named Ying Wee, to be our head of Singapore and COO. Um, so, together, the three of us as co-founders cover tech, with myself, I come from a Wall Street IT background, Uh, Quant as Head of Research with Ilya, and Capital Markets Operations, and really making us institutional great with Jai.
0: And the name Cloudwell, where did that come from?
1: So it's a long story, and it's actually on our website. Uh, There is a novel by Mark Helperin called Winter's Tale. Uh, It is a story of New York City, or a mythical story of New York City. And one of the recurring things in it is a cloud wall that sweeps over um, the river from New Jersey. Uh, and it is imagined as a, as a barrier between worlds that you can cross through. Uh, so I had actually used Cloud Wall for a number of years for my blog. Uh, it's one of my favorite novels of all time. Uh, and this idea of kind of a boundary you know, between digital assets and traditional just kind of resonated, uh, and so we kept that.
0: Very cool. It's kind of, kind of the origin of the the copper name as well. Actually, we liked that it had the roots in like early currencies as, as coins, and it was also had roots in uh, transistors, early microchips. It was used, so we thought it was a nice bridge between those two worlds. Very nice. Um, so CloudWall has um, a risk platform. It's called Serenity. That's correct. So, yes, t- like, what does it do? How, how does it work? What are you evaluating? Like, what's the foundations of it?
1: Sure. So. The first version of Serenity, the one that is running in the cloud today that we launched with our design partners on July 1st, so very early stages, is a market risk model. Um, For those more familiar with uh, risk models, it's a Fama-French style factor risk model. So the idea of factor models is we look at the commonalities between assets. So typically with stocks, uh, which is what was originally studied with Fama-French, Uh, you identify factors like its correlation to the market, liquidity, volatility, momentum. So um, we do analysis every night uh, off of 120 assets and we basically break down each of those assets into those, those components. We can then take that same breakdown and then given any portfolio out of those 120 assets, break down the risk by token, by factor, by sector, and help you better understand where the risks are coming from, what you might wanna hedge. So that's kind of version one, uh, but the vision for the platform is really risk as a service. So the ability to offer many types of risk models to CFI and DeFi participants, so market risk, liquidity risk, smart contract risk, Mm. thus the interest in stable coins Mm. um, uh, and and their effect on, uh, on DeFi protocols. Uh, but we're really looking to look at the broad spectrum of risks that institutional investors could face.
0: And with the, the 120 assets in, in V1 they've gotten out, those are pure, like, crypto assets, or...?
1: They are all pure crypto assets. Um, so roughly taken from, you know, top by market cap, mm-hmm. um, plus conversations with prospective clients and our design partners to make sure we have full coverage for their portfolios. However, we quite consciously use digital asset rather than crypto, Mm. because we're interested in risk for anything tokenized. Mm. So it could be a fractional NFT representing a piece of real estate or even a piece of intellectual property. Um, So we would like ultimately to embrace risk for any tokenized asset, because part of the vision of the company is that all assets will eventually be digital assets. And so we think they are going to be subject to risk management by Serenity, even if the underlier is a stock or a bond or a mortgage.
0: How, like, as an observer of the space for quite a while, you've seen its growth and its adoption. How far away do you think we are at this point from, you know, that fractional ownership by an NFT or, you know, some real asset being represented on a blockchain that can be plugged into Serenity?
1: So... I, this is actually one of the first things that I wrote about with the starting of the company with uh, an essay called The Blockchain Economy. So I am maybe a little bit more pessimistic than most about the timelines. So I think the big story is in the 2030s. So still perhaps over a decade from now. Um, and however, I think three to five years from now, we're going to see a significant acceleration from traditional finance. Because at that point, you know, going into the later 2020s, I think the penny is gonna drop that this is the direction it will go in the 2030s. We're not there yet. The reason I'm pessimistic is you know, one of the things that I like to geek out about is regulatory risk and the regulatory aspects. And um, unfortunately, given the somewhat frozen state of our political system right now, and given that many of these regulations, they're almost too flexible. Uh, so, you know, when the SEC says, like, look, our hands are tied, like, Gensler's actually right. Mm-hmm. Like, the way those laws are written right now, even though they're, you know, getting on to be 90 years old, they're sufficiently flexible to embrace digital assets as securities. So, absent legislation, you're not going to get a structure that's necessarily going to accommodate digital assets in the way that people want it to, to allow full tokenization. So one of the reasons we're actually half New York, half Singapore is different jurisdictions are moving at different speeds and the Singapore uh, monetary authority of Singapore uh, is very forward thinking in terms of tokenization. And we think that may be one of the first places in the world that you really see this developing.
0: And uh, when you looked at other places in the world, I mean, Europe's got its Mika framework that's just come out, um, although I guess some people have criticized it being is maybe not going far enough. Yep. Um, And do you you see it as a a two-horse race at the moment between sort of Singapore and the U.S., or are there other jurisdictions that could leapfrog and and really blaze a trail?
1: So um, you have a number of jurisdictions there that I think are actually trying to leap ahead of Singapore by being even more aggressive. Uh, MAS uh, is particularly focused on institutional rather than retail. Um, so they're being a little bit more narrow about it, but I would say broadly speaking, like they're one of the few global regulators really talking seriously about full-on tokenization. So, if I had to guess, and you know, we, we can place our bets, right? You know, the sequencing that I'm expecting is Singapore in the Middle East, probably followed by the UK and Europe, not mm. far behind. US trailing, and then China at the end of all of it. Uh, I think it's gonna take a long time for them to walk back from you know, the steps a couple of years ago in terms of cracking down on crypto. Do
0: you think there's a risk that um, any of these jurisdictions might be moving too quickly and not doing enough DD on the process?
1: Possibly. Um, I would say for the most part, many of them are in a learning mode that is gonna take time, so it's kind of inherently slowing it down because mm-hmm. of that. Um, the ones that I worry about um, are jurisdictions that have like, very rapidly um, legalized cryptocurrencies as legal tender. Mm. Um, I think that probably should have taken a little bit more time. Um, certainly the IMF has expressed some concerns, say with El Salvador along those lines. Um, I don't know that the consequences of cryptoization are fully understood in terms of those economies. Um, but I would say uh, for the remaining jurisdictions, the, the speed is appropriate to too slow rather than too fast.
0: So think, thinking about you know, the way you guys analyze risk in the crypto space versus maybe what you did in the traditional financial services world, what are some of the key differences?
1: Or are so, there any? There are some huge differences. So, I one of the reasons we decided to become a digital asset risk specialist was a view that just adapting traditional finance risk models was not going to be good enough. So, there are a couple of attributes that I think are are, 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 are notable. Um, and uh, I'm potentially going to ruin your podcast by talking about Stoner Cats uh, as an example. <laughs> I don't so, think so. So. Um, uh, s- when Stoner Cats came out, you know, and there was this huge push to get these NFT tickets to get to see uh, this, uh, you know, show this web show about marijuana-smoking cats, because why wouldn't you? It has Vitalik Buterin in it as one of the voices of the cats. Um, there was a huge spike in Ethereum gas prices as a result, and a lot of failed transactions. So. To me, this would be the equivalent of NYSE stock trading slowing down because it's raining. It just doesn't happen. Mm. You have this weird coupling that probably only has an analog in commodities, say where there's like a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, where the real world in some way impinges on the financial world in that way in terms of, uh, of trading and risk. So first you have that, you have this interesting coupling between the infrastructure. Um, and trading that you have to accommodate. So operational risk is way bigger. Um, The second thing is liquidity risk, because it's early on, is still far more prominent than it is in the equities world that I knew well, or or even in equity derivatives. Um, So there's a lot more attention in modeling that than in modeling uh, market risk or or derivatives risk. Um, And then finally, You know, if you believe, and we could be wrong about this, the direction of travel on tokenization, like a lot of risk systems assume a universe of stocks of like thousands of stocks. Okay, what if you had a stock for every single house in the United States? That's more than 100 million tokens. So even just the technical design of the system from a data perspective, is totally different from a traditional risk system. So we believe you actually want something built from the ground up for this asset class as it evolves. Uh, our CTO, you know, he thinks that I'm crazy. I'm telling him plan for petabytes and exabytes of data. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you're, we're pulling in daily crypto prices. Why do we need that much space? It's like, trust me, it's someday, coming. we're going to want tons and tons and tons of data about hundreds of millions of tokens. We want something that will scale.
0: And someone once told me risk was boring, and now we're talking about stoner cats and <laughs> tokenizing every house in America. So things, things must have changed. Um, so in your show and tell segment, which you did for us, we talked a little bit about the risks around stablecoins. Obviously, they have a huge use case with the, the growth and the prevalence of DeFi. Um, can we just run through some of those like pros and cons of the, those three main stablecoin categories that you had? And if you could give us your, your personal preference or personal prediction of of what you think will ultimately be the winner in this space?
1: Sure. So we spoke about fiat collateralized, crypto collateralized, and algo stables. But I would break them actually even more broadly just into two, which is something based on a finite amount of collateral and something that doesn't require collateral at all. So within the collateral bucket, you have the choice of your USDC or Tether, where you have a managed set of reserves that are cash or cash-like instruments sitting behind the tokens. These are the dominant ones today in terms of size. Um, On the crypto side, you know, DAI from the maker uh, protocol is um, the the, the most well-known example where instead you have a basket of crypto assets backing it up as collateral. However, to manage the fact that they're highly volatile, they're generally over collateralized. So there's some sort of collateralized debt position With the maker protocol that's backing that up uh, that could be 150%, 200% collateralized to allow for the fact that the price could be swinging around far more than the reserves behind Tether or Circle. And then finally you have the algo stables that depending upon the design may have no collateral at all. They're generally arbitrage based so and you know in the common designs there's usually a secondary token that is almost like the stabilizing arm uh, of the protocol. So there is some incentive to, um, uh, to buy or to sell, to push the peg either, push the value of the stable coin either back up onto the peg or back down. Uh, so in the case of Terra, that was UST paired with Luna, um, uh, famously compared by Bloomberg to a financial mullet. Uh, the party in the back being Luna. Yeah. Um, and you know they're an interesting idea in that there are huge problems with collateral and we can talk a little bit about you know some of the hazards around there, if you like. Um, and you know the great thing about the algo stables is they just eliminate the collateral problem entirely by substituting arbitrage. But another risk comes in, which is that stabilizing protocol. Um, You need people to be willing to trade on both sides of it. So there's liquidity risk actually embedded in that. And what we saw was effectively a nonlinear response. So UST is like a penny or two above the peg. Okay, people are incentivized to trade and push it back. It's a penny or two below, it's fine. Okay, give it a really strong whack and knock it 20 cents off. Well, now something interesting starts to happen. Now there's actually some potential concerns as more and more Luna is minted um, that it's becoming hyperinflationary. And now people don't want to trade. So instead, you had Luna Foundation Guard going in with their Bitcoin collateral desperately trying to reinforce the peg. And that's where you come into the big problem with collateral, which is that it's finite. People know it's eventually going to run out. And so there's some point at which the peg will just fully break because you can no longer back it up. So so you might say, okay, I feel better if someone is managing collateral for me. You know, I put a dollar in, I take a dollar out. And the news last week with Tether kind of shows some of the hazards of that. So it was revealed that Tether actually had loaned Bitcoin out because they have a very small portion of their reserves that are, are in crypto. Um, and they'd lent it out through Celsius for yield, and that position was liquidated. And a number of people said afterward, well, you know, no harm, no foul. The position got auto-liquidated the way it was supposed to. But the way I look at that is more of misaligned incentives. So the issuers of Tether um, do not have to pay you and me any interest whatsoever for the privilege of getting a Tether token. All you get is a Tether token for your $1. They collect the entire spread on those reserves. So for you and me, we want, we want that stuffed under a mattress. We, we want the most conservative possible investment in the reserves. The issuer, their incentive is the other way. They make more money the, the, the more risk they take with those reserves. So you saw, for instance, Tether in particular, investing in commercial paper, which would have higher yield for them, and thus they can collect more spread off of it. And they've been winding that back to their credit but you don't actually get a say in that um, as as a holder in Tether. And if the disclosure is imperfect, um, you don't even necessarily have enough information to decide whether that's safe. And so people are almost kind of putting the finger in the air and saying like, yeah, Circle seems to be doing the right thing. They don't have to, but they seem to be doing the right thing. So we'll trust USDC more. Um, But there's nothing really mandating that good behavior. And what you have essentially is a zero interest bank account. And, you know, normally when you have a bank account, there are things that go with that on the regulatory side that you don't have with stablecoin. So, you know, you kind of get none of the compensation for that counterparty credit risk um, and the full-on exposure, but the issuer is the one who gets all the upside. Like, you know, from an economic perspective, things like that that are asymmetric usually end badly.
0: And we tolerate it because it gives us access to DeFi or something else. Like, uh, otherwise, why, why are we doing it?
1: So there is no alternative, Tina. That's the argument people make all the time. That like, well, we have to because we need a tokenized fiat position. CBDCs are not there, that's a whole separate story. Um, uh, And so our only option are these private stable coins. And so people use them. um, And then they make sort of risk bucketing choices of what am I comfortable holding longer term versus not so long term. Um, But you know, just as we saw in the financial crisis, Uh, You you know, people say, you know, they're going to, was the quote, I think it was from Citibank, you know, we we, we have to keep dancing until the music stops. Um, So people are almost feeling forced to do this thing Mm -hmm. that they acknowledge is risky because they feel there's no better choice. So you were asking earlier about predictions. So my hope, and it's really more of a hope than a prediction at this point, is I hope someone cracks algo stables. Because I think they're the most promising vehicle, because they do not have that problem of finite collateral. Um, They're quite elegant in their mechanism. But there's a lot of work in terms of stress testing them and designing that mechanism to be as robust as possible that I think could take some time. But if somebody gets that right, you know, they're the Alexander Hamilton of DeFi. It's, It's such a key piece of the new financial system.
0: But what would it take for that to be, I mean, um, I think you're talking, when you're talking about the fiat collateralized, there's regulatory implications, right? Yes. So with uh, algo-based stablecoins, do you answer some of those regulatory concerns because they can be baked into the, the smart contracts or, or how the governance of that token is being operated? Well, How do you get around sort of like the regulatory burdens that a fiat collateralized stablecoin would have with an algo coin?
1: so looking around the world generally the regulators have been bucketing the fiat collateralized differently certainly loomis gillibrand does this in their classification and part of the reason for that is they're most worried about fiat collateralized and there's often this tension with the regulators between we want to foster innovation and we want to support it but we don't want to expose the rest of the system to too much risk so anytime they see a crossover a coupling they get nervous. And everyone knows the history with Lehman and commercial paper. So they hear a stable coin is holding lots of commercial paper and alarm bells go, go off. If you tell them instead, well, it's token versus token, uh, it's entirely, you know, within the circle of DeFi, generally seem to be more comfortable with that arrangement. And also, you know, it's, it's almost just tracking a reference price. It's, it's not a dollar position in the same way that fiat collateralized is. It's not backed by actual cash or cash like instruments. It's just trying to track the price. So there are some instruments, and I'm thinking of like the Mirror Protocol, uh, which, you know, uh, M Tesla tracking t- uh, uh, Tesla stock. There are issues there where you're tracking things that are securities. Then there are problems. But if you're tracking the value of a commodity or a fiat currency, I think there's going to be more room for experimentation because you know what's the worst that can happen of something effectively following a price along, um, so long as the mechanism that it's using to follow does not actually trade things in the traditional finance system. Does does that like you
0: said the regulators are more willing to let this side of things grow a little bit? Is that only because the the volume's not there right now, and it's it's quite a small amount, and the the impacts, as you say, would be quite low because you know the barrier to entry is high here. and Not many people are participating in these pools. But you know, if, if fiat uh, collateralized stablecoins fall by the wayside because of regulatory burden, and then algo backed stablecoins rise up, and you know suddenly there's a huge swell of, of interest and, and volume coming to the space. Surely then the regulators. Will, Will be just as concerned, but maybe even more so because there isn't something as simple as a, a peg to a, a fiat currency.
1: Possibly. I would say that would couple to a broader concern, though, which mm. is just, you're absolutely right. Like, the fact that it is small right now is one of the things that's keeping them comfortable. You know, I, I come from a technology background in terms of managing production risks. We like to talk about blast radius the blast radius from a failure in DeFi right now is still relatively small. So for DeFi to get really big, it needs to get big enough to be worrisome to the regulators. And that's, I think, one of the interesting tensions in the space, that in order to be successful in the way that we want it to be, it's probably going to attract a lot more scrutiny as we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of assets trading. And then, yes, I think they'll be lifting the hood on every important mechanism. And if stable coins continue to be part of the connective tissue in DeFi, then they will ask questions about how those protocols operate.
0: So there's been, um, you know, lately, there's been quite a few high profile collapses. Um, and it seems like there aren't enough people like yourself from a risk background who who can ask the right questions in this space. So. I mean, what should we be asking? What did we miss? And, and how can we sort of, not safeguard our futures, but how can we ensure that we don't repeat some of these big mistakes?
1: So I think one of the things that we've seen in the last couple of years, that I think even if we're entering a second crypto winner, we're gonna continue to see, there are a lot of people on Wall Street who are intrigued by digital assets. Like, I cannot tell you on the trading floor how many people I came across like, you're interested in crypto too? Yeah, let's mm. talk about that. Um, And, you know, I think we're going to see a continuing flow of people with that background. And I think having a conversation between people who have the technical knowledge and people who have the knowledge of how to work in a highly regulated environment, how to manage these risks is important. Because, you know, people, you, you, you cannot ignore history. And the reality is a lot of these frauds, you know, Wall Street was way ahead in terms of pump and dump, and you know all spoofing, all of these things. Nobody has invented anything new here, um, and so you know, bring some of that experience of things that can go wrong. And you know, Lehman is a and, and and its relationship to commercial paper is a great example. Like if you understand how that worked and make analogies to design of protocols today, that can be helpful. So, you know, I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as well, you know, coming up from a technology background, it's very easy to get blinded by, like, the, 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 the pizzazz of the technology and say, oh, it's all new. This is totally different. Well, there are some fundamentals that don't go away. So I have to disagree with you. Risk is not boring. <laughs> Risk is fundamental to finance. It's everywhere in finance. And that has been true for a very, very long time, and it will continue to be true. So you know, people coming in with those different perspectives and mixing in uh, with the ecosystem, I think, is healthy. Um, I hope when those you, you know, players, whether on the regulatory side or on the trading side, come in, you, I hope the conversation goes both ways. That it's not just reproducing traditional finance on a different technical substrate. There are real opportunities to make it more efficient, to make it better, and possibly, even from a risk perspective, better. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people who have pointed out that, um, you know, some of the, the, not all of the DeFi lending protocols held up terribly well. Celsius is a great example, but some did. Um, And a lot of these mechanisms and automatic stabilizers behaved exactly as they were supposed to. So it seems like there's something there and that there's something to be learned from those new mechanisms as well. Uh, So I'm hoping to see kind of a coming together of the different perspectives in the coming years.
0: And what's next for Cloudwall? Because you mentioned Serenity v1 was released fairly recently. Is, is v2 the next thing or, or will there be an, a complementary product or service to the offering? What, what can we expect from Cloudwall?
1: So we run uh, right now for development in three-month iterations. So we just finished one, we just kicked off another. Uh, this second iteration will wrap up in the fall. That will be our first full production release. So the next big thing is go to market with Serenity. Uh, We're currently building scenario analysis facilities so you can stress test your portfolio. Uh, We're integrating derivatives analytics uh, for option valuation, bootstrapping a yield curve. So we're building a whole bunch of things that are relevant for risk. Uh, And then moving on, we'll be going on to liquidity risk and DeFi risk and so on. So we're building a general risk platform. It's really the work of years to build that full suite of tools and models, but we think by this fall we're going to have something that's very interesting to institutional investors for helping better understand and manage their risks.
0: Excellent, Kyle. We, we wish you a lot of luck with the launch and we'll follow it very closely. But before we let you go, we ask about uh, 10 questions to everyone, if you wouldn't mind running through our little quick fire round. Sure. Cool. So, um, where do you see the crypto industry, digital asset industry, in one year versus 10 years?
1: One year from now, not substantially change. People often in technology overestimate, as Bill Gates said, you know, what's going to happen next year and underestimate five years from now. Mm-hmm. And I would concur with that when it comes to digital assets. People are substantially undergunning how radically different it is going to be 10 years from now. And if i had to pin one thing up for 10 years from now. It's that regulatory framework for full tokenization will be in place.
0: If you could change one thing about the industry today, what would you change?
1: <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble if I answer this one. <laughs> um, I wish there was a little bit less ideology and a little, uh, a little more openness to a range of ideas. Um, there are a lot of people in the industry, and I'm one of them, who are super excited about the potential for decentralization. Uh, There is an undercurrent that any suggestion of anything a little bit central a little bit regulated. That's the devil's stuff Um, I think that's unrealistic and that gets in the way of actually having trillions of trillions of dollars of assets on the blockchain
0: Is there a piece of technology in your own life that you couldn't live without?
1: Uh, My iPad for reading my economist Not on a Kindle on an iPad. Interesting.
0: Okay. Um, What does your weekend look like? If you get some time off, what are you doing?
1: So they say about being uh, the CEO of a startup that you have tremendous flexibility. You can work any 100 hours a week that you like. (laughs) So it's a lot of work, uh, but when I'm not, I'm walking our dog. What kind of dog? She's half whippet, half German shepherd. Oh, wow. Fast then. Fast, smart, high energy.
0: Okay, um, I don't know if you're a film buff, but do you have any movies that you could watch over and over again and never get tired of?
1: No, not really. I, I, I'm more of a read-a-book-once, watch-a-movie-once guy.
0: Fair enough. Do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by?
1: Uh, no, not particularly.
0: Uh, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but um, do you have anyone that you recommend we follow on Twitter?
1: Um, I'm not. There's this split in crypto, like the LinkedIn crew and the Twitter crew, and 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 I'm not as much on on the Twitter side. We,
0: we can augment this for you. We can say who should we follow on LinkedIn. <laughs> if you're trying to get out of answering that, you failed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I I uh, I don't. Uh, as you guys mentioned before uh, on uh, on Telegram, I think you guys actually do the best recap for news uh, So thank you to copper for that. I Tend to be a bit of a magpie. I, I I look at lots of different things. I have no one person who I'm constantly following
0: What was the last thing that surprised you?
1: <laughs> so I opened my email and saw that you guys were recording a two-minute segment before which had to be scripted which I'd missed <laughs> That was like the biggest surprise of the last 24 hours.
0: You did very well to accommodate our request. So thank you Okay, who's the next guest we should have on our show?
1: So you should invite Jasmine Burgess from uh, One River Asset Management. I had a fabulous conversation with her. She's incredibly busy. You'll have a hard time getting her, Uh, but uh, you would not regret it.
0: Maybe if she hears you recommended her, then she'll come in for us. Okay, last question, and then we'll set you free. Uh, If you somehow got to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask one question, what do you want to know?
1: I think I would most want to know, what was your vision for the end state? Because there are hints in the white paper, there are hints from some of the writing of a fairly radical view of where things were going many, many years in advance of how it all played out. And I would have loved to hear what they thought about, you know, where does this ultimately go? I think
0: we would all like to know that. We can place our bets. Yes. Kyle, thank you very much for coming in. I've enjoyed this conversation.
1: I have as well. Thank you.
0: And to our listeners, if you haven't already seen Kyle's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at Copper HQ or find it on the website copper.co forward slash insights. There you can also sign up for our newsletter, which includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper or like Kyle suggests, you can follow us on Telegram. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon@cooper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, or if you know somebody who should be, give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And of course, this show is only made possible because of the technical and creative wizardry, of TallySpear, with support from Melee Mountfort, Eva Leela, and Kate Light. New episodes come out weekly, and in the meantime, stay safe.